This episode of the RPG Academy podcast is brought to you by Wormwood Gaming. Wormwood Gaming handcrafts custom accessories out of premium hardwoods. Everything they make is backed by their craftsman's promise, which is a 100% satisfaction guarantee for life. From role-playing games to board games and card games, Wormwood Gaming can take all of your gaming experiences to the next level. Take a look at their website, which is wormwoodgaming.com. That's W-Y-R-M, woodgaming.com. And take a look at some of their amazing wares from dice trays, dice towers, dice vaults, and more made of some of the most gorgeous woods you will find. These premium gaming accessories may not be something you need, but once you look at them, they will definitely be something that you want. Wormwood Gaming is a sponsor of a Catacon this year for 2016. They will be donating some of their product for us to give away. And in addition to that, if you go to their website and you find something there that you want, which you will, and that you will buy, hopefully you will, if you use the coupon code RPGACADEMY, you will get free shipping. In addition, this will help their company gauge the interest of our audience for their products. So if enough people use that coupon code, we may get additional supplies for Catacon. So please take a look at their website at wormwoodgaming.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Fall in love and pull out that credit card and help yourself and a catacon with the coupon code RPG Academy. And now on to the show. But let's do introductions. Senda, I will start with you. Okay. Hi, guys. I am Senda from She's a Super Geek on the on the RPG Academy Network. We are an actual play podcast that highlights women as GMs. I also do another podcast on a different network called Pandas Talking Games, where we talk about uh, gaming questions and problems from the perspective of one-shots and campaigns. And I talk about one-shots because I run a lot of them. Um, and I write for Gnomes too. So um, hopefully that's a good resume. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you've got me and Kendall both beat. So yeah. <laughs> All right, Kendall, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Kendall, and I'm with the Redemption Podcast. We're a Star Wars actual play podcast that you too can hear on the RPG Academy Network. Yay. Uh For for my the reason I'm here is I've been running con games uh, mostly for Catalyst for their demo team for Shadowrun since about 2005. Uh, also did some work with uh, Pelgrane Press for their 13th Age line when they launched. And help them along. And lately, I've just been kind of running my own games going at cons. So, Well, thank you both for being here. Um, as for myself, my name is Michael. I'm one of the duo of the RPG Academy podcast. We do a lot of different shows, including actual plays, long form, short form, GM theory advice, interviews, and more. We also host our own convention called a Catacon, which just happens to be around the corner, <laughs> which is actually which is where this came from. One of our uh, listeners and uh, long-time listeners who's also coming to a Catacon was asking for some advice because I believe this is the first time he will be running a game at a convention. So I thought, why not get some people who actually know what they're doing, and I'll just kind of sit here and you know listen. But instead, he found us. So, <laughs> hey, I don't well, know about you. I know what I'm doing, or at least I'm really good at faking it now. There you <laughs> go. That makes one of us. All right, so Kendall will be uh, man manning the chat room for us because I'm not smart enough to figure out how to do that. So if you have any questions for us, please don't hesitate to jump them in there. We kind of have a loose outline of how we're going to approach this topic, but we can take questions if they make sense at the time or we can hold them to the end. And this will run for probably as long as it needs to, but I would say two hours at max, and I kind of doubt we'll get there. So I want to start with talking about how you prepare for a one-shot game 
compared to a, like a campaign or even just a game with your home group when you're playing with people that you don't know. So um, again, Cinda, you being kind of the resident expert, we'll start with you. <laughs> well, now I made myself sound like an expert. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so when you're starting the process of preparing or writing what will eventually be a one-shot game for a convention, do you approach that any differently than you do for a game that you would run normally or with people that you know? And if so, kind of expound on that a little bit. I usually try to be slightly more prepared. It doesn't always happen. Um, the interesting thing for me is that most of my gaming at this point is happening in situations where it is recorded and I am playing with people that I don't know. So I basically just run like that all the time. I would say it's a little bit more relaxing when I know people, <laughs> when I know who's going to be sitting down at my table. The The other thing that, that I tend to do, and this is just me personally because it's my style of game that I like to play and that I like to run, is that, um, you know, I, I choose a lot of games that require very little traditional prep work. They might require work in terms of thinking about how to handle a setting or a basic premise to start from, something along those lines. Um, but I'm, I'm really not doing any sort of linear story planning. It's just not how uh, one-shots function for me. And in fact, I'm really bad at running modules generally, so I can't write them as modules for myself. So I basically am a, what's my first scene? Okay, and then we're going to just go from there and I'll see what happens. Um, and that tends to be the kind of GM I am, whether I'm running at a convention or at home. <laughs> but I also don't run for particular companies like Kendall has done. And I do think that brings up a good a good point we need to cover is that if you're going to run a one shot that is very improvisational based, that's different than if you're running like a one shot that you know you have a limited time and there's sort of plot points that you need to hit. So we may circle back around to that specifically, yes. <laughs> but I'll move over to you, Kendall. Sort of the same sort of question when you're preparing a game for a convention versus home play, is there a difference to that uh, in how you prepare the, the writing or the module itself? I know we were going to circle back around to this, but again, it really depends on what you're doing. Uh, running for Catalyst, they have – there's usually a couple different ways. There's Shadowrun missions. There's uh, modules for the conventions. Sometimes there's the tournament modules, which are even – more crazy, where we actually – it's kind of a torture to the GM session because we get those the night before usually and we've never seen them before. And we have to run two consecutive nights with two different tables and have to grade them and it's it's nuts. But when I run normal games, I do a little bit like Senda does, but I, I have like – I try and do a three-act write-up. Okay, they're going to start here. This is where we need to be when there's going to be a twist, and this is where they need to be at the end, and it's up to the players to figure out how to get from point A to point B to point C. Uh, so for me, again, what I've... I'm by far the least experienced of the three of us in running convention games. I've started to get a lot more experience recently. I've also started, you know, obviously to play more now that I'm going to conventions. I tend to run games that do have more of a story and a plot. I'm not afraid to jump off of those if I need to, but I'd usually come to the table with something. And the things that I've found that are different for a convention game versus home game is that you need to have a beginning, a middle, and an end for a limited amount of play. In my home game, you know, you can just kind of keep going. You're going to stop at 10 o'clock and then pick it up the next week. You know, you try to get to a good cliffhangery top spot. But when you have three, four, maybe five hours total to give someone an experience, you need to have some sort of conclusion. If you're going totally improv, you can just, you know, you can work that in. If you're good at improv, you'll get there. But if you're running a module, you need to make sure that you're aware of your pacing. So you need to have a good opening scene. You need to have a good middle and a good end, as Kendall was saying. And I think the biggest thing I would suggest is make sure that you have modular encounters. 
so that if you're going kind of slow, you can cut one out and it doesn't really affect the story. If people are just burning through things, then you can add a couple more in so that you don't end too early. So as you're preparing your adventure, kind of write out, this is what I think will take about an hour, this is what I think will take about an hour, and this is what I think will take about an hour, and have one or two modular encounters within each of those hour blocks that can be dropped in or pulled out as appropriate. You hit two very, very important things in my book. The first is you got to have an end. We were just at Origins this year. It wasn't any of the games you play, You were around for, but I played in one game. The game was very freeform and kind of open, and at the end of it, there was this huge cliffhanger. And it's like, to be continued next year. It's like, wait a minute. What if I'm not going to be here next year? I have no idea who you are. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get in your game. <laughs> So you're now going to leave me hanging. I don't know how the story resolves. And I felt like, okay, this is a pretty good game, but now you've cheated me out of an ending. So, because it it wasn't advertised as like an ongoing game. So that was one of the big things. And the other one is watch your time and prep your time. The first thing I do if I'm running up my own module is I'll write down those things. And then I'll take my Thursday night gaming group because we play We've been playing every night, every Thursday night for like five years, and I will run them through it because I know they will beat the hell out of everything I can think of. And if they, like the Star Wars game I ran at a recent convention, I thought I had four hours of material. They blasted through it in an hour and a half. Wow. So I really had to expand that. I've, I've had that experience too. Yeah. Which, um, so the fun thing about playing games that are a little bit more improv intensive is is that it it's easier to kind of flex them on the back end to accommodate that kind of thing. And there's some interesting things you can do with how you involve the players in your story, um, specifically in terms of kind of how you ask the questions themselves uh, that you're that you're doing. Like I can I can ask you, hey, tell me about this room and I can see like what I get out of you and like it just is an open invitation for everybody to jump in and like let's have a conversation about it and build some story, build some world. But if I'm if I'm getting into more of a hurry, then um, I can say really I, I can use much more leading questions to get a very specific answer quickly and still keep my players involved and it pushes the plot along faster. So um, like... Uh, <laughs> why is this room on fire is very different than tell me about this room, right? That's like it's, the mage. you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, just a little thing that I throw out there as like a, because I don't actually plan things. Like I, I have a direction that I know things are probably going to go, but if it doesn't, that's fine. Like we're going to find an end, but how to kind of control the, uh, the flex, the ebb and flow of the game, in that conversation that I'm having with my players. That's, a, that's my version. That's the improv version. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one of the things that I've also noticed um, is, especially if you're going to an actual convention, like where you're scheduling an event, making sure that the description that you're providing matches the experience you plan on giving. And also that you're asking for what you want. If you are going to run a very strategic and tactical type game, that needs to be in the description so that you don't get people there who think they're going to just do four hours of role play. I'm usually the other way around. I'll tell people this is a low combat, high role play type of experience. So I get people that are going to sign up that want that type of experience. And also if there's an age limit, you know, some of the games I run have adult themes. They're not graphic necessarily in nature, but we talk about, you know, bad things happen to good people. I don't know that I could run some of those games for a 10 year old without 
you know, massively changing what I'm doing, which might throw me for a loop in the in the moment. So just make sure that your descriptions are accurate to what you want to do and what you're trying to do with your players. So uh, creating a good description of your game is also how you're setting player expectations at your table. So when someone comes and sits down at your table, you're all on the same page to start. And you can avoid things like problem players and, and people who might not have anticipated what they're getting and um, all kinds of stuff that can, you know, make problems at your table by having a good description. Like, if you're running something that's magical girls, just make sure you tell everybody it's magical girls. <laughs> Everything that that should be magical girls, actually. <sighs> Everything should be. No, you, you <laughs> Definitely got a, one you, last job. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a good point there. Although, uh, to play devil's advocate, if you put a, a, a description out there that says, you're going to hit things with swords. People will come to your table with really low expectations. Then you can wow them with your great role-playing <laughs> skills. It makes you look awesome. There is that. That still sets an expectation, though. Like, that still sure. conveys something to me about your game. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like, I can find something else to do that time slot. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Potentially. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, choice of game. Now, if you're running for a company, you're pretty much locked into the game they want you to run. But if you're just running a game for fun or for other reasons, which we can also talk about the reasons why you'd run a game, you know, what sort of choices do you make? Why do you choose the game that you choose? Since Kindle, you're already up on my screen. We'll start with you this time. <laughs> for me, lately, it's, I mean, the last convention I ran at was uh, Grand Con uh, last month, and I ran Star Wars because that's really where a lot of my focus is. Hello, podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my world kind of revolves around that, but I also have a couple other games. I mean, I can run D&D. I can run Pathfinder. Uh, I can run my other current favorite game, Feng Shui. As you well know, because uh, Michael actually got into a completely unplanned and unexpected Feng Shui game with me at Origins this year. Which was great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I haven't laughed that hard in years. But it, it really depends on what I want to focus on at that convention, for example. There are times when I just feel like I want to be silly and I want to just goof around with a bunch of people. I'll run Paranoia. If I want some high action and I'm kind of in the mood to run something like that, run Feng Shui for epic stories, we Star Wars. If I want to do a dungeon crawl, D&D, it really depends on my mood and what I'm in the mood to volunteer for. What about you, Cinda? As someone who runs a lot more improv-heavy games, um, what goes into your selection process? Um, honestly, there's, so there's two parts. The first part is how lazy am I? Do I just want to run something I've run a million times before that I can just do without thinking about it? (laughs) So that happens. Um, so I end up running a lot of all out of bubble gum and, uh, lasers and feelings and one last job because I really don't have to think about them very hard and they're different every time. So as a GM, I don't get bored. And to me, that's a lot of it is, um, I get really bored of things when they end up the same way every time. That's part of the reason I really like to run improv games. Um, But I'm also probably less scared than I should be about pulling out new games at a convention that I may not have even ever run before, especially having podcasted for a while. I'm running things that I haven't run before, like, a lot, and I'm usually recording them uh, for other people to hear. 
So I, you know, at a catacomb, I'm actually hoping that I can break out Royal Blood, which is Grant Howitt's latest game, and I really like it, and it uses tarot cards, and it's super cool. But I, I, I kind of tend to look for things that are going to be different every time that have really high levels of player involvement, so that I'm not the person at the table who has to drive all of the action and make everything happen and like tell a story, honestly, because that's that's not what I personally get out of GMing. I um. I really like to have a, uh, a creative experience with the entire table. So I'm looking for games that will do that for me, that um, are uh, that feel like safe games to play with a table of strangers. So I might not do Soth <laughs> at a convention, because <laughs> uh, that could, I mean, it could go great. It could go terrible. Like, that's the kind of game I think you play with people <laughs> that you trust. <laughs> right. But, uh, I, I mean, so I, I think maybe that answers your question. Does it a little bit? Like, I, I, I'm usually looking for games that are light enough in rules that uh, I'm not going to have to look up anything during the game because it drives me crazy when I do. And right. I'm terrible at really... I mean, I played, uh, you know, 3rd Edition and 3.5 and Pathfinder for a long time. And I just am not into picking up tomes of rules anymore. Um, I still play in those games, but I don't like to run them. No, and I think that that hits kind of what I was going for. And that really kind of leads me into the next topic, which is kind of going to bridge between prepping and playing, is that for convention games, one, it's not unusual for people to, to quote unquote, bring their A game with props. You know, I don't normally use them at my home games because I'm lazy, but for a convention, I might spend some time and actually make some props or some handouts. I also almost always bring pre-gens uh, for the games, mostly because I just I want to have at least some idea of what the characters can do. And if you let people bring their own, depending on the game system, Pathfinder is a good example. You may get something that you know uses a, a book you've never heard of, and now you're dealing with powers and abilities you're not comfortable with. So make sure you bring pre-gens, and then just be smart or or I guess uh, thoughtful about the pre-gens. You know, bring a variety of classes and race combinations and genders. Or for mine, usually I just leave the gender off and tell people you can play the male, female, binary, whatever. I don't care. That's up to you. But I want to make sure that no one feels uncomfortable just because all the you know, pre-gens are dudes or all the pre-gens are girls or whatever. I just think that you know it's something you may not think about. But when you're dealing with strangers, you don't know who's going to be at your table and you don't know what might make them uncomfortable or what could set them at ease, which is just you know, providing pre-gens that make sense for them. I don't know if I covered that very well. Any Anything on that before we move on? No, that, that makes pretty good sense. Uh, I mean, you need to have everything. I mean, you don't want to go too crazy as a, as a GM because that's a lot of work. For example, uh, our, our GM for our podcast, Chris, he ran games at, at our last convention too. And I was talking to him and he's like, yeah, I've got 14, NP, 14 PCs. So no matter what somebody wants to play, I've got it covered. And I'm like, Okay, you're a little more crazy than I am. I came up with like seven that work really well, good together. You know, a couple of them are, ob- you know, then I've got like, because if you, if you craft the adventure and you make sure, it, like I do with, I have different points, I always try to make sure there's something for each of the pre gens that I've created. So if there's a giant Wookiee with a Vibro Axe, I'm going to have people for him to hit. If there's a guy who, you know, talks the Banthas out of the trees, he's going to get a chance to do that. If you have 14 or 15 pre-gens, it's really hard to plan for that. True. Absolutely. I would agree with that. So any last uh, comments on prepping or planning before we move on, or are there any questions that we want to cover here, Kendall? I haven't had any questions yet. Uh, Richard has came up with a couple of good pointers. Uh, Apparently, if you're on your iPhone using the YouTube app, they only hear you. Uh, They can't hear us. Don't know why. And he pointed out that you sent the tweet uh, with a link to the Google Hangout 
to the call. Yes. I, I did delete that after I realized what I did. So it is totally my fault. Hopefully I deleted it before a thousand other people got it, which no one else jumped in. So I guess uh, Richard was just uh, quick on the draw. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Apart from that, the only other thing I would say is um, when you talk about props, the other thing I do is, especially for systems that are kind of newer or not really mainstream, like D&D, I won't do this. Shadowrun, I kind of won't do this anymore either, although it's helpful. But for Star Wars Feng Shui, I will have cheat sheets for each of the players. You know, make it easy, have a quick reference sheet for the players so they don't have to be digging through the book. And if I'm really insane and I'm running paranoia, I have full-on props for everybody. I've got little red squirt guns that are not loaded, by the way, uh, badges and everything so they can really get into the mood of killing each other. Oh, oh, that's awesome. I like that. (laughs) And actually, that was one of the things I meant to mention and I forgot was cheat sheets. So, yes, if you're playing a game that uh, people may be just trying out or learning and it's rules intensive, then it makes sense to have cheat sheets, either one that's for the entire table or specifically for each character. Like if you have a spellcaster and they have four to five spells, you maybe you need a cheat sheet for spells so you don't have to look them up the entire time. Yep. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and we'll move into the actual process of playing the game. And again, we'll start with Cinda as our resident expert. So when you actually go to sit down at the table, what do you do? How do you manage that? Uh, How is it different from a home game if it is? Um, So actually, the first thing for me happens before I even sit down at the table, which is, um, and it depends on where you're playing and what style of convention it is, you know, how much of this happens or not. But the first part of of, uh, doing a one shot for me a lot of times, because I'm running these games that no one has ever heard of is I end up standing at my table and collecting players. Like, that can happen to me pretty frequently. So there's um, there's a start point where it's standing there and making sure that you get a table. And sometimes that's easy. And sometimes I did, you know, it's more and more frequently now I do sell all my tickets. So it's just like, it's hanging out. It's catching people as they come in. And um, you can set a very good table precedence by how you're greeting people as they come up to your table and how you're... Um, basically conversing with them and, and getting to know them that little bit in the time that you're waiting for the rest of your players before anything ever happens. Um, so I actually I actually treasure that little weird chunk of time before my game starts. Um, it's actually really important, I feel like, to just to set the table dynamic for how things are going to work. Once I'm past that, I do do a couple of things. I usually do play with an X card on the table because I don't know where people are going to go. It is an improv game. I don't know any of these people. And, uh, Richard, no, I don't have any specific icebreakers. I'm usually just so bubbly that (laughs) it's true. It either makes everyone, (laughs) it either makes everyone really uncomfortable, but then they like relax into it. I don't know. I'm I'm like, it's, I just like, I start putting out lots of personality. (laughs) Uh, so, cause I don't want to take up a lot of time, like doing that sort of thing. Um, I do usually play with an X card on the table because uh, safety is important. And I had an incident recently that really reemphasized that for me. So I'm going to start saying that everywhere all the time. Make sure you have some safety mechanisms in place. So I usually talk about that at the beginning of my game. Um, I usually give people a quick rundown about the game, basically the description again, to make sure we're sitting down with all of the same expectations about what kind of play and play style we're looking at. 
I really like to have everybody, and, and depending on the game, there's different information on these, right? Like I'll throw out index cards and a Sharpie and we get everybody's names on there so that, um, you know, I we have everybody and then we'll, we'll get character names on there as they're developed depending on the game or um, before we start if we have a little bit of character creation at the beginning of the session. So I like having those little cards in front of them and I usually tell people to write it on the front and the back because then the person who's next to you can see it too because I mean it's great if I can see it but it's much better if everybody can see it and I actually so Michael to your point earlier about cheat sheets that is something that I do usually do as prep if it's something that I'm running a lot so for example one last job I have a version of the it's basically the entirety of the game but it is all in a single sheet and it's got (laughs) the player section and like the GM section and it's I use it for reference too um so it's uh, it's very straightforward and it means um, I can run through the rules very quickly. And again, since I'm running games that people haven't usually played before, sometimes they have, but some a lot of times they haven't, I do actually usually have to do a quick introduction of at least the basic rules before I start. Um, but part of the reason that I like to pick the games that I pick, as I said before, is because they're not really rules intensive. So I can usually yammer out the basic rules for um, the systems that I'm running in five to Probably about five minutes. I mean, I can tell you all out of bubblegum in like three sentences, right? So it's very straightforward. Uh, Lasers and feelings takes me, you know, a minute. (laughs) And one last job takes me five. So that's kind of my setup for getting the beginning of something. And then... um, I'm sorry, I've lost track of the rest of the question. You want me to just keep talking? Because I'll just keep talking. Like, well, I, I wanted to jump in just for a second uh, to elaborate on a couple of things. Uh, one, I also agree with the note card, and, like the name tense. Um, I'm a big proponent of that. I always ask them to write their character name on the front. And then on the back, I ask them to write everyone else's character names because I want them to refer to each other in character, which also sets, sort of sets the tone that this is a type of game where I really want you to you know, role play. Uh, just in case anyone listening isn't familiar with the X card concept, I'll try to explain it. If I screwed up, either of you can jump in. But mm-hmm. essentially, because you're dealing with strangers, you don't know what make, might make them uncomfortable. You have a, a mechanism in place called the X card. If someone becomes uncomfortable at any time for any reason, they can either just hold it up if they have their own. They can touch it. They can in some way gesture that this you know this is a subject that I'm not comfortable with. And then the scene's just over. No matter what's happening, just it's over. You fade to black. You pick back up with the next scene. And that could be, you know, any number of things that are happening in the game, violence, graphic depictions of violence, sexual in nature. And that's the thing about about the X card is that you you don't know what's going to cause someone. It could be just maybe drug addiction. You have an NPC who's drinking heavily or using drugs and someone who has a history of that, that might be enough. So it's a way to make your, your game table a safe space for everyone. Now, you may not need it. You may not think you need it, but that doesn't mean that the people at your table don't. So at my home game, I know my players well enough to have a pretty good idea of of what's going on. But when you're dealing with strangers, I think it's very important. Again, we want to be ambassadors to the hobby. That's one reason why you would run a convention game is you're trying to expose more people to to the game and to the hobby in general. And you want to make sure that's just an inclusive and um, safe place. So if, if so, I didn't do justice to that, Phil, and Phil, feel free to jump No, I, I think you did do justice to it. One other thing that I will say, because I learned this recently, right? Like, because I had a safety fail at my table, and that's part of the reason I really am talking about this a lot right now, is uh, if you, it's not just for a player in distress. In fact, sometimes if someone is in distress, they may lose track of that X card. Or, um, if, I mean, if you're in the middle of an amygdala hijacking, then you don't always respond logically. If you know another player at that table is in distress, please feel free to use the X card on their behalf. 
and just bring that game to a stop. We can figure out where to pick up and move on. Um, so uh, I know that sometimes we talk about things like X cards kind of flippantly. Uh, you don't know until it's happened at your table. Like it's 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 <laughs> it's worth it to have a plan for how you deal with a safety issue. All right. So let me uh, I'll cover a couple more points and I'll turn it over to you, Kendall. Hang on. Uh, um, we did have a question and I think oh, it sure. was kind of directed towards you when you're talking about you know, putting name cards out in front of everybody. Uh, Richard wants to know what about "Hello, my name is" tags. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer my point of view real quick, and then I'll hand it back to you. Me personally, I despise those things with a holy <laughs> passion. I think they are an abomination before everybody. So I will do very much what Senda and Michael are saying. I actually have little plastic standees that fit a three by five card, and I just put them out for everybody with an empty card before they even get there with a Sharpie, and I say, hey, write your character's name on the front, write your name on the front if you want, but, you know, that kind of thing. So I agree with you on that. What do you think about Hello, My Name is Tags? I don't think it's a, a bad idea, but it doesn't accomplish everything that I want because I think it's important for them to know the um, – which I guess it does, actually. If everyone has that, they can see everyone else's name. So that does fit that. But I also will sometimes use those table tents for initiative um, so you can gather them up and put them in a row. So I, I don't think it's a bad option. It's just not one that I've done. And it's also, I already have note cards in my bag. I would have to go get, you know, hello, my name is stickers. Always but, index cards. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, I mean, it's just, always. you always have them. But no, I don't think that's a bad option. The one thing to remember, especially in conventions, because I, I run into this constantly, um, especially at Origins and the big and Gen Con and the bigger media conventions, you're going to have cosplayers at your table. They're not going to want to put a sticky something to their stuff. And exactly, a lot of people, you know, might not be comfortable staring at people and looking at their shirt to go, okay, your name is, why does it say Inigo Montoyo on your name? You know, that kind of thing. You're <laughs> not you staring at people. Whereas, you know, everybody's looking at the table. Everybody's looking at the dice. It's a safe place, for lack of a better term. So, again, going back to playing the actual game, one of the other things I would mention is I always want to get to the table first. I want to be there early. Uh, I have had a couple bad experiences where GMs have come in late. Uh, I had one in particular where they they forgot their stuff and had to run back to their room. Things happen. I've been to Gen Con. I've been to Origins, yes. But at the same time, I don't want to be that person either where my table has to wait half an hour for me to run back, and then you're out of breath, and you're you know discombobulated. And it, just, it just throws the whole thing off. So I always want to be there early. I want to have all my materials laid out. Like Cinda said, I want to greet the players as they come in, make sure everyone gets to the table, they know what's going on. I do the general icebreakers. You know, I've had some training and facilitating meetings, and there's a reason why you do an icebreaker at all those because it gets the juices flowing. It gets people used to talking. They learn that this is going to be an interactive thing. And I usually ask them how long have they been playing, you know, what's their favorite character, what's their favorite game, just something about the hobby to get them talking. And sometimes you can actually gauge a little bit about how they answer that, what kind of player they're going to be, because uh, they start talking about their favorite character is the one that does 70 points of damage in two turns because of this feat, chain, and this magic item okay you want to kill things i need to make sure there's things to kill if, if someone tells you their favorite character was this time that you know they broke down and cried because of some story great you're a role player i'm going to give you some some meaty scenes to chew on so that you know it helps you break the ice it also helps you gather some information about the players so be there early uh, also have extra pens paper and always have note cards with you extra yeah. dice too you never know yep I always assume that my players are going to show up and they're going to show up late. They're not going to have anything with them and they're not going to know anything about the game. Yep. So as Michael said, the, well, first of all, let me say this. Players, show up five to ten minutes early. I know it's not always possible because you get GMs that run their full four-hour game and you want to be there. 
But if you can, try and be there five to ten minutes early. For the GMs, get there at least 15 minutes early. Find your table. If it's being used, hover nearby. What I usually do is I'll set out the book or whatever, something very visible. Like if I'm running Star Wars, I will set the Star Wars books right up in front of me as I'm getting my stuff all ordered. And when people come up, you know, hey, are you here for the Star Wars game? Are you here for Feng Shui? You know, and that's how I get them into the table. Once everybody's there, I do sort of the same thing. Uh, I usually ask them more system-based questions. You know, have you played this before? Do you know what all these funny dice do? And that kind of gets me the level of, okay, if everybody at the table's played before, I don't want to spend 15 minutes going over the dice mechanics or in Shadowrun asking if you have a mathematics degree. (laughs) Um, Trust me, it's like that. Uh, But then I can just jump right into things. But if I need to take that first hour, which I usually plan in a con game, the first 30 to 45 minutes is going to be talking about characters, introducing the game, talking about the game system and teaching the game system before people get into it. So that's kind of how I always look at that. And I always try and target my game to run half hour shy of my time slot because I know I can pad it or cut it short either way, but that gets people time to kind of wrap up, get their stuff together. Maybe they'll give you a little feedback at the end of the game and you know what they like, what they didn't like that you can incorporate later. And it gets them time to go and get a drink or hit the bathroom before they have to get to the next game. And their next gym will be happy that they show up five to 10 minutes early. I absolutely agree with that. If I have the choice of, of, as a player, my game ending half an hour early or right on time, I will pick half an hour early every time because, again, I schedule terribly at conventions and I probably have something else starting at exactly that same moment. Yep. And then also don't, and you kind of mentioned, plan a bathroom break. You know, if you're going to be there for four hours, uh, don't either set the expectation at the beginning, like, hey, if someone needs to go to the bathroom, we're all adults, you know, just please get up and excuse yourself. Or I usually just plan halfway through the session. I always take a 15-minute break. Everyone goes to the bathroom, gets a drink, gives me a chance to read my notes if, if they've gone completely off the wall and how I'm going to judge my time and everything like that. So that's very important as well. Just the general comfort, comfortness, comfortability, whatever, of everybody at the table. Agreed. <laughs> comfort. Just comfort. <laughs> exactly. All right. So is there anything else we want to talk about as far as actually playing the game um, not dealing with it problems yet, but just in the process of running the game at the table. Is there anything else we haven't covered that we think would be important? I think you guys hit on anything that I missed. Ha ha ha. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think we got yeah. everything. I think we're good there. Okay. Well, then we will move on uh, to the last section until we, again, if there's any questions, we can answer them. But what sort of problems might you run into other than what we kind of already talked a little bit about, but I guess then how would you deal with them? So if you have a player that's really late, they don't have their stuff, you have an X card issue, you have a problem player, uh, you know, it's just like really loud. There's another table next to you and they're just really, really loud. And so it's hard to hear. How do you deal with those issues? throw dice at them. (laughs) (laughs) But not your good ones because you want them back. Oh, God, no. The extra pointy ones you got from game science. Actually, (laughs) I'm going to throw a question I took from earlier that Senda mentioned something. You mentioned one of the things, and I see this a lot when I'm playing Dungeon World especially, or running Dungeon World, is you'll come into a room, hey, Player X, what does this bar look like to you? Now, here's the thing. Is that when you, as a GM, usually kind of feel out, okay, I know this person's kind of very creative because of what he's done already, but what happens when you do shine the spotlight on somebody and it's somebody that is not a creative person, they're there to roll dice, and or they don't want to be in the spotlight? How do you handle that? 
Um, it's actually, so there, there's two parts to that. The first part is when I'm doing that thing at the beginning where we're all sitting down at the table and doing introductions and stuff, I usually actually get a pretty good idea during that first part of who my go-to people are going to be for like jump in and do something at least to set the mode for the table that this is how it's going to work and that we are going to be jumping in and doing things and the games that I'm running do tend to require that everyone is involved on that level because it's things like um, if you play one last job you sit down you don't have characters and you have to create the next person's character and that is the game like that's the first half of the game is that we build each other's characters at mm -hmm. the table. So everyone kind of has to be on board, but there's, there's two parts that I usually find that make that easier. The first part is finding that person as I'm sitting down at the table um, to begin with and doing those introductions, like that person who's a little bit more outgoing, who is probably a really good go-to for the first thing. Mm -hmm. And once that person leads off, it's usually easier to get other people involved. But the other thing is, is that when I ask those questions, I am, I'm always super excited to see what people are going to come up with, A. B, I don't care what you say in that situation. I'm going to tell you it's a fantastic idea. Like, there's a, there's, there's a, people tend to be shy at the beginning of my games, and then by the end of my games, they're not shy anymore, because we create a space in which it's, like, fun and exciting to throw out ideas. The third part of that is, if I turn to someone and they just look totally stuck, I, I will always have a backup idea right? So it's not me taking back control and being like, oh, you didn't have an idea. So now this is going to happen. It's like, oh, do you have a cool thought? Oh, hey, what if something like this happened? And then it becomes a conversation again, okay. in which we're talking about it. And, um, and, and that's another place at which, um, you know, when someone gets stuck, I'm there to step in and like start that conversation and make it into a conversation instead of just like, ha, you're on the spotlight. You don't have any ideas. Like, and that <laughs> happens to me too in games. Like, I'm just like, uh, I got nothing, guys. Like, help me out. But then the other part of that is that that's a way to bring in the rest of the table and start sourcing some other people who may be a little bit more outspoken too. But it's still that person's like moment and they, they can still make a final decision because usually when I'm turning to a person and asking them a question, honestly, it has something to do with their character. And so they're the final arbiter of whatever happens in that moment or that thing or whatever because that's their character. So I guess those are the things that I would say is um, it's there's a there's a large part that's fostering um, at the table um, what in productivity language I would call psychological safety um, so that people are part of a team and they're willing to work as a team and you've created an environment where they can't really mess up. Right. Okay. Like. Um, th so that's, that's a large part of it is that if you make that safe space, then I actually usually find that I don't usually get people who are like, no, no, I don't want to answer a question. Like, <laughs> instead we get sometimes, sometimes the answers are more collaborative than others and it's fine and it doesn't matter. Um, I'm still gonna, you know, that's an awesome idea. I love the way that you said that or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a different maybe way of uh, approaching it but like I a part of not planning for me is um, I do work on the assumption that I'm going to source a lot of my material from the table itself and I will tell you sometimes that's harder than others and when it's hard to source the table for that information that's a harder game for me to run like oh, when yeah. I have to pull teeth but it's usually like usually we smooth our way into it and by the end of the game we're good um, even when it's a rough table to start I don't know if that helps at all. Is no, that kind of... 
No, I think that I think that's very good. I mean, one of the pro- one of the biggest problems I've seen is you know when you're trying to elicit player buy-in, and you have somebody at the table who just wants to sit there and almost be part of it. You know, he almost wants to be not want to be a participant. He wants to be a spectator. Uh, we had this at a game at Grand Con. We had a group that was very outgoing, and one guy who just was he was just happy sitting there playing the character who, you know, sat and he played a character who kind of just sat in the corner and watched everything. And it's like, Hey, let me here. Here's your chance to shine. I do this. Okay. That's great. How do you, you know, how does this do this? It's like, I mean, I do that. If that's, if that, I mean, you can usually pick those people out, right? Like if they're, as long as you, as long as you can see, like they're still engaged and enjoying the game, then I kind of just don't worry about it because if they're happy, I'm happy. Yeah. It's just, it's like, it's, it's balancing. If you have like an alpha player, who's the kind of person who's really loud at your table and tries to, and and kind of accidentally even maybe just takes over the whole table, then, then you have to be a lot more careful about like, and you, (laughs) not this person. Like, what are you going to do? Tell me something cool. Like, and, and there's other ways to do it too. Like uh, when I run five minute RPGs and I just catch people on things, I think Michael, you experienced this, didn't you? I still need yes. to edit this. So the, the question that I ask in my five minute RPG, which is the one question you get to answer uh, as a player when you play for five minutes is what is the coolest possible way that you could get out of this situation? And I, I don't just ask like, what do you do? Right? Cause I don't, I don't want, what do you do? I want, like let's make something awesome like what is the most kung fu crazy movie way that you could get yourself out of this um so there's also again there's language involved in how you ask things that you're going to get different responses depending on how you do it that's also kind of related i go off on tangents sometimes you guys i'm sorry this is why i edit my podcasts and now you're watching live and you all know how terrible i am (laughs) i'll still edit the audio version (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the audio version will be about five minutes. Yeah, right. then, then <laughs> so I, I wanted to touch on that uh, just a little bit about the drawing out because that's something that I've done more and more recently. And I, as a player, I've always enjoyed that. It just never translated in, into running games. And I actually want to credit Darcy. She was the first GM that I ever really noticed that she was doing that. And this is when we went up to Chicago a couple of years ago for that Demystics uh, game where we played the L5R and everything. And I sat at her table. She was the GM. And again, this is going to sound awful, but she asked someone one of those types of questions and they gave an answer. It was an okay answer. And she's like, oh, God, I love that. Mm -hmm. And she was so excited. And it actually, like, there was a moment I'm like, that really wasn't that great. And then it was like a light bulb. Like, oh, okay, I get it. She wants to encourage them to continue to do more. And it just literally was like a light bulb moment for me. It's like, oh, okay. And then um, I kind of equate it to like like a magician where they'll say, okay, pick a card. And if you pick this card, they go, great. So this one's left. And so they're always going to get the answer they want, no matter really what you say. And I think that's what Cinda was getting at, is if they give you an, um, an answer that doesn't really fit or you know, isn't as good as you wanted, you can always turn that into something or just frame the question. I know we had a, a whole episode recently about, or I think I had an article about um, starting to this process. I, I said, put a box around it. So rather than just saying, like, what's going on? 
you ask a question like, there's two men at the bar arguing. What are they arguing about? And that's a very specific type of question. I'm still giving them enough that they should be able to come up with an answer. I can, you know, I can still fill in if they don't. But it's different than you walk into a tavern, what's happening? So I think kind of that's what Cinda was getting at. The way you frame the question can often inform the types of answers that you will get. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to mention, uh, and then I'll jump over to you guys. I was playing at a con game a couple of years ago. And again, we covered this in one of our episodes. One of the players just wasn't involved. It wasn't like what Kendall was saying where they were happy to be there not really participating but watching this person just really didn't I don't even think they wanted to be there I think it might have been like a boyfriend girlfriend situation and one person just didn't really want to be there but the other person was I I don't know for sure but the GM kept trying to pull this person in and considering we had a very limited amount of time I actually grew frustrated because it was clear they were never going to get involved like you know they, they were in the truck Okay, everyone goes into the house. It's a Scooby-Doo. Everybody goes into the house. I'll stay in the truck. Okay, things are happening in the house. What are you doing? I'm going to stay in the truck. Okay, it's now nighttime. Everyone's going to bed. What do you do? I'll sleep in the truck. Okay, I don't need to come back to you anymore until you're willing to jump in. Like, if I see you get excited, maybe you start to lean forward. Like, okay, do you have something? So I guess what I would say is as you're reading your table, if you have someone that's truly not engaged, I'm going to be okay with you just not being engaged because I don't want to waste time if you're never going to participate when other people want to. And again, I don't know if that's a great answer, but that's how I would actually handle it because I got very frustrated in that game because we had a limited amount of time and we, we wasted a lot in my mind trying to draw someone out that we never succeeded in doing. If you're, if you're really set a good approach though, I mean, and I agree that sometimes people just don't want to play. I had a game, um, last year where I was running Feng Shui for the first time. Nobody at the table had played except for one guy. And this girl had brought her boyfriend along and he wasn't a gamer and he, he just didn't want to be there. He didn't want to be there. I could tell he didn't want to be there. And when we broke for the bathroom break, she actually came up and said, you know, I'm really sorry. You know, he's, he's new, you know, he's never been gaming. He's here because of me. And I go, okay, well, he seemed kind of interested in this is that what kind of movies does he like? And by getting just a little bit of information, I could, I kind of tweaked the story a little bit to get him back on board. So he actually kind of found himself wanting to jump back in. If you, if you have a good rapport, if you do that, like we said in the beginning, if you get a good back and forth in the beginning with your players, sometimes you can get that at the break. You can get a little bit more social time and people will give you information that you can work in. So um, I just saw that. Um, how do you think you say that? Reverus? Yeah. yeah. So, hey, Reverus, my best advice for you um, in terms of being worried about not being social enough, even though you enjoy the role play and know it's really hard because there are a lot of people, but it's, uh, and this is, this is, I, I had to grow into this as a GM at conventions too, and I still get nervous, but like my best tip is to just relax and be yourself because we're all nerds. And I think a catacon will be a great place to be, uh, uh, going for the first time as a convention because it's, it's smaller. And I haven't been there before. I missed last year. I'm going to be there this year. Um, but small conventions tend to be really relaxed, friendly places. Like you, you, be cool and you're going to be fine. <laughs> Just relax. We're all friends. One of the things I tell people, though, and this is something that I learned way back uh, when my, one of my first big con, I went to Anime Central in Chicago. And I'd only gone to like a couple small, like 100, 200 person con, you know, game days almost. And I went to Anime Central because I was big in anime. And, you know, there's 5,000 people at this convention. 
and I was like all freaked out and nervous about it. And then by the end of the weekend, I had figured it out and I, I described it to a friend of mine this way. Going to a gaming convention or an anime convention is like being around 5,000 of the best people you've never met. Yeah. When I say we're all friends, I'm not kidding. Like, we're all friends. Even if I haven't met you yet, like, we already yeah. have things in common. So, And no matter how weird you think <laughs> you might be, there's somebody weirder than you. Yes. <laughs> Take comfort in that, okay? Yep. Just believe me. There's somebody weirder than you. And there's yeah. somebody who probably is exactly the same weird you are. And that's pretty good odds when you're coming, because that's the idea behind these conventions. We're all coming to game because we're all gamers. We're all nerds. Yeah. So, hey, if you end up at my table, which I don't have any games on the schedule yet, but Michael, we'll talk about that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Then then just know that, uh, like, and I think that this is true of most GMs, like when you sit down at our table, part of what we're doing beyond telling a story and um, and having a game and everything is really that first part is trying to make sure that everyone feels welcome and comfortable at our table before we start playing. Like that's what that first part of it is. Um, and it usually takes, uh, I mean, you know, usually the first 10 to 15 minutes of a game are like a little wobbly while everybody kind of gets accustomed to each other. And that's fine. And everybody expects it and it's going to be that way. And as a GM, I'm there to make sure that everything keeps moving and pull us through that little rough patch because it's going to smooth out as everyone gets more comfortable with each other and you know relaxes yeah i'm pretty much famous for having no shame yeah there's that too (laughs) but even myself either (laughs) when i first sat down at a role-playing table i still the first 15 minutes i'm usually very quiet because i don't have the voice of my character yet i don't have a feel for the table yet this is as a, a player i mean and so it, it takes me a few minutes to warm up to the table as well and to kind of figure out what my role is. You know, which which player do I need to be at this table? And sometimes that's the quiet player. That's the, Sometimes that's the helper. Sometimes that's the alpha player who's, you know, leading things and, and trying to set the mm-hmm. tone for role playing. So if someone is a, a bit shy, and again, I want to clarify my last statement about someone who didn't want to be there. If you're leaning forward and you seem interested in the story and you, you know, you, I can tell that you're interested in what's happening, even if you don't want to actively participate from a role playing standpoint. That's different. You are absolutely welcome at my table, and I will continue to give you opportunities to be engaged. This person, there was a lot of very physical tells that they like were leaning back in their chair. They weren't facing the table. They, you know, they didn't have the character sheet square in front of them. There, there was clearly no interest in them to be there at all. Not just. I'm kind of shy or I'm not sure how I want to to role play in this situation. Those are very, very different things. And then I I do want to flip one more time to the player side. If you are not enjoying a game that you're in for whatever reason, again, if maybe the subject matter doesn't fit you, maybe there's not an X card or there is, it doesn't matter that, you know, you thought it was going to be one type of game and it was another, it is okay for you to say, you know what, this isn't the game for me and leave. Now, I don't want you to have to do that. And, you know, as a GM, I want to make sure that you're having fun. But if you're just not going to, then it would probably be better for the people who are there if you just, it just you know, excuse yourself. You don't have to flip the table. You don't have to make a scene. But say, hey, you know, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You guys have fun. I'm going to take off. Because I had an experience at my first year at Origins. We, we were playing a 4E game. There were a lot of issues. That, you know, again, we covered in the podcast a while ago. But it never even occurred to me to just leave. I was miserable for four hours. It was one of the worst experiences in my, of my life from a gaming standpoint. And after the fact, as we were talking about it, people kept saying, well, why didn't you just leave? And again, it was like a light bulb moment. Like, oh, 
I, I guess I could have done that. It just wasn't even, you know, in my mind that that was an option. And I definitely would have been happier going and doing something else. And I'm sure everyone at the table would have been happier without me there. So, you know, it's a win-win in that case. But I want to be clear, I'm not talking about if you're, if, you know, people are not treating you correctly, if you feel like you're being intimidated. I mean, it's a different story. It's a different story. And there's a part of me still thinks you, you might want to leave because if it's an uncomfortable or hostile situation, but I don't want you to have to leave. But again, that's a choice you're going to have to make for yourself, whether, you know, playing the game in an uncomfortable situation is worth it. I'm talking about you just don't want to be there. You had a bad day. You had a bad burrito, whatever the case may be. If you're not going to have fun at that table, it probably would be best for you to leave because everyone else will probably have more fun if you're not dragging down. If that makes sense. Nope. It makes perfect sense. I ran into that same thing two years ago at Origins. I had a guy who took a popular TV show and wrote up a superhero game about it. And by the time we got to playing it, I realized he didn't know a darn thing about the TV show. He just <laughs> took the he took the concept and he was just not in. I mean, the game was just horrible. And about halfway through, I said, you know, I got to actually I. I did the faux fake, I got to get going, a friend of mine called, uh, he, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but speaking as a GM, if you're going to be at my table, there's something I require of you, and that's your attention. And the players at the table should have your attention too. If you're going to, and I've told my players at home this, if you're going to sit at the table and you're going to sit there on Facebook and you know I'm describing things and everybody else is role-playing back and forth and they look at you and you're like, what's going on? And you obviously don't want to be there. By all means, just excuse yourself and leave. We're probably going to do better without you. Again, though, Michael hit a good, very good point. If you're uncomfortable for a reason, you know, if you feel up to it, bring it up. Otherwise, it is well within your rights and you should leave. So um, if we got that, you think we got that covered pretty good? We got a question from the, the bullpen here. Sure. I'm going to aim this at Michael. Chris from the Redemption Podcast, wants to know, how do you feel or how well do you feel props go over with players at a convention? It it depends. I don't think a prop can save a bad game. I do think a good prop can elevate a good game to great. That's a good way to put can, that. Can, can I just say that, um, so at, at Queen City Conquest, uh, John Arcadian walked in with a full-size, perfectly painted Terrasque in like a, a circus. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Full size? How did he get it in the building? Well, no, no, no. Like f uh, to scale full size, I should say. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one inch equals five feet. <laughs> okay. Um, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was a massive thing. And I didn't play that game, but it looked amazing because the game was, you're going to kill a, a Tarrasque. So... <laughs> I will just jump in that John is running that game at a catacon. If, you oh, know, there you, you go. go. Yeah. That thing is amazing, you guys. So if you want to kill like the biggest, baddest D&D monster ever, um, it looks amazing. <laughs> His wife, I think, did the painting because she's awesome. <laughs> I think for me, it also, it kind of depends on what, what the prop is. Uh, you know, if it's uh, a map that's been weathered and has a, you know, a burn hole in it, like that's cool, but it's not really going to add a lot. If there's like an interactive puzzle where, you know, there's moving pieces and parts that I as a, as a player get to interact with, that could be a very cool moment. Uh, you know, I don't really, miniatures, I've, I've kind of got to the point where I don't really enjoy those. Again, a giant but, Tarrasque but is it's different. A 
Yeah, that, yeah, that might be different. Um, but it's it, very impressive. <laughs> but I, I mean, kind of what comes to mind is that the most recent uh, Gen Con, I played in a game with, and I, I think again, I'm tweeted this out, like world class paper craft minis. It was that Goonies and Ghostbusters game, and those those were amazing. They were beautiful to look at. I was so you know, I'm enthralled and impressed with them, but he also ran a good game. I don't know, like if if we didn't have those, I kind of feel like the game might have been just as good. But again, I'm a theater of the mind type of person, but I don't think they hurt the game, if that makes sense. So again, I don't think they make a good game, but they can elevate a good game to a great game. What I'll do a lot is like, especially I just got done. We finally just finished uh, Curse of Strahd for Ravenloft for my, my Thursday group. And that's a very spooky game. So I, whenever there was something, a bit of information or something that, you know, I could have just read the players. I made sure I went into Photoshop. I typed it up. I used a weathered look. You know, if it was something they found, you know, in a pack, in a pack, dead man's pack, I probably rolled it up. I stomped on it, like dropped it into the bottom of the garbage can, put smashed the garbage on top of it a few times. You know, nothing, nothing, not, not like that bad. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that, but I made it look like they had found it in a grave, but it was still, you know, perfectly acceptable to use at a table. And it set, you know, when they unrolled it, maybe some coffee grounds fell out and it looked like dirt. And it, it just, it really helped reinforce that. Now, do I do that for most con games? Not usually. Like I said, the one I usually do that for is Paranoia because people really enjoy the spectacle. And, you know, if you, it's a game where you shoot each other in the back. If you have a plastic laser pistol, you're going to shoot people in the back. So it's that much more fun. <laughs> so I, I will say that I feel like a horror game is probably the one type of game where I think they might have a greater effect. I do kind of feel like that might work. I also, if I run a game that I, I plan on being somewhat spooky i always try to make sure that game's at night like i don't want to get scared at 12 o'clock on a sunday so i don't want to play your you know call of cthulhu game on 12 now friday at 11 p.m to to 1 or 2 a.m that's a good time to play those types of games and uh, and i'll give credit to the u2 can cthulhu group again they came to a catacomb last year and this year they played in a game where and again they kind of go all out but they uh, they actually had lanterns and they played in a game where you were basically were playing as campers, and that's the only light you had. So there's like four lanterns around the table, and that's what you had for your light source. I do think those can really set like an atmosphere differently than just saying, here's, a, you know, here's the map that you found in the guy's pack, or here's the letter that you found in the bottom of the garbage can. Those are cool, but I don't know. For me, they don't do as much as I think maybe they do for other people. What do you think, Cinda? I don't know. I have um, I have definitely gone very theater of the mind, and I used to do a lot more props, and I used to play with a lot more props, and they're really cool, and I like them. But let's be honest: if you're going to use props, you have to plan. <laughs> you have to have an idea what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, like on true. the fly, I can't just like <laughs> um, necessarily turn up the things that are happening at my table. So at this point, I really don't use props at all. I want to bring up a, a point. I played another game. This guy made his own minis out of Legos. Yeah. And they were, they were gorgeous. I mean, he did an amazing job. But near the end of the adventure, it was very clear that we have won and we should have bypassed the ending. We, we did a good job. We role played well, good roles. And the DM totally just like railroaded us because he had this mini right. that he wanted to show <laughs> us. Then you want to use it. it. Yeah. And yeah. it was gorgeous. 
But yeah. when we set it out, I'm just like, why are why are why we doing are we this? Doing this? Yeah, this is no. dumb. Yeah. So again, yeah. if you're going to use them, don't force them. Yeah, that's that's where you get into over prepping a game, right? Like, yeah, that's that's a thing. <laughs> and and with and props props create more possibility that you will over prep. And if you over prep, you tend to get very attached to your timeline, and it's harder to let go and let what happens at the table happen. I know that I'm terrible at it. That's why I don't run those games anymore. Like, I'm awful. I overprep, and then I'm like, no, you will do all the things that I prepped because that is what I said. So now what do I do? I don't prep at all. Like, I don't run games that I don't know what's going to happen. I think all. that's called overcorrection. But, <laughs> no, 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 so no. It's great. <laughs> we've, we've talked about um, problem players, but are there any other issues that might happen in a con game that are fairly common that we might want to talk about? Again, noise is one of them. I don't know that you can do a whole lot about it. I mean, really, uh, I know I usually get hoarse at conventions because I do have to talk louder, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to compensate. Yep. You know, you could always stand up. I'm, I'm, I'm a sedentary GM. I like to be behind my screen. But maybe you stand up and you walk around so that way when you're talking like role play scenes, you're next to the person you're role playing. So you don't necessarily have to scream. But other than things like that, what else can you do for noise or, again, any other typical con issues you might have? I'd almost feel creeped out if you got up and walked around next to me to, to role play with me. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, well, I mean, I've <laughs> met you. Looming. I met you. So you would be yeah. pulling a, a Trump, like just hovering <laughs> over his shoulder. <laughs> Where's the X card? <laughs> Uh, sorry, Kendall. Continue. No, it's thought, okay. But you finish. I, I, I just want to. I do want to make a side note that uh, Reverus pointed out that he feels props can be sometimes distracting to players. Yeah, I can see that too. And again, it's. I think it's a matter of you have to be. They have to be interesting to make them worthwhile. So I think. I think I'll just leave leave that subject on that. Pertinent. Yeah. yeah. Um. I'm, so one thing that I actually tend to do at my table, and it's partially because of noise, and it's partially because you a lot of times are in a giant room with a certain level of background noise and a certain level of just background activity. I usually stand for a lot of my game to GM. And it does a couple of things. It keeps my energy higher because I'm not just like bleh, melting into my chair. I can... Um, I don't walk around, but it means that I have a better angle to be able to lean across the table if I'm having trouble hearing someone. It means that I can be louder to compensate against the background noise. And I think that it also helps in terms of preventing some distraction because it's easier to, like, I'm a, more of a focal point, <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And and so it's it's a it's an energy thing both for me and at the table. And then it's also like a... Uh, it helps with the projection and it helps with trying to keep focus on my table despite the level of background activity that is happening all around me. And I don't necessarily stand for the entire game, but um, I do stand for a lot of it, especially because when I'm a player, I sit. So I'll sit for like four hours and then I'll go run a game. I'll be like, well, I don't want to sit. <laughs> yeah. No. And uh, I don't yeah. do things like I'll put one of my knees on my chair when I'm tired of just like standing, standing. But like I go through a series of positions. <laughs> like um, so that's that's one thing that I will say that um, I find it helps in a lot of ways to just be. Yeah, especially for noise. There's not a lot you can do about it in conventions. What I tend to do is, especially if I get like the smaller cons, you're not always assigned a table. Sometimes it's just a room. So if I get to a convention room and there's nobody else in there and there's four tables and one of them's in the corner, I may switch the signs because I'm a horrible person. But what I like to do is if I put myself in the corner, that means everybody's talking towards me. It makes it easier for me to hear them. 
I have no problem projecting, so I will be loud. Also, they're all looking at me in a corner, so there's not distractions behind me. They're more focused on the game that way. The only There's not a lot you can do about a loud environment other than when, after the convention's over, bring it, with anything having to do with comfort and noise level, bring it up to the convention planners. If they have an RPG manager or whatever, just say, hey, this is what we ran into. First year we did Grand Con at the, hotel, at the hotel here. All our tables literally were four feet, three feet wide, I think. So, like, I put my 15-inch laptop down, and I had no room at the table because I was sitting at one end. It was like sitting at the end of an I-beam. And we said at the end of it, this sucks. You have to fix it. <laughs> and the next round, they and we were also packed probably in, like, a 20-foot square room. They had seven or eight tables. So we were packed elbow to elbow. And the next year, we got into the big salons. We had big round tables. And it was much better environment. So those are pretty much your only options. Uh, it's really nice to hear that they fixed it for you. Because what ended up happening, Denver Comic Con, they used to do RPGs. And instead of fixing their problems, they just don't do them anymore. Oh. And I'm like, well, that's too bad. I guess I just won't go anymore right. <laughs> like because <laughs> well, that's kind of what i was going for guys but like they they ended up moving them the tables out to um an open atrium area because they didn't want to put them in a room anymore oh my god and it was directly under the stage where they were doing the musical acts and there were no <laughs> walls like you couldn't actually hear the music because it was just echoing around this giant atrium in the denver convention center but like the noise levels were right. unmanageable you couldn't hear well, I will Anything. pre-apologize because at a catacon, we are going to be ass to elbows uh, in a giant room. No, but, no, no, uh, no. We expect that. It's a small convention. As long as there's not someone doing a show 100 feet above me with no walls. Okay. I think we're good. How, wait a minute. What, there's one other problem I, th I just thought of. Two or three years ago at uh, Origins, I was running 13th Age, and they parked us right outside the D&D &D room. And I noticed at certain morning times of the day... The sunlight would perfectly illuminate with a blazing magnifying lens type of intensity our table. Oh, my God, that was harsh, especially <laughs> since gamers are pretty much nocturnal normally. So I, I thought a couple of my players and me included were about to burst into flames and hiss like <laughs> vampires. But that we ended up actually the group of us picked up the table, moved it five feet to the right and kept playing. There you go. Problem solving. I actually, I actually did think of another possible issue I'll just bring up and then we'll throw it at the questions and we'll kind of wrap up. But if you are playing a game that isn't necessarily very improv heavy, like a D&D &D game or Shadowrun game, what happens if you're in a four-hour game and hour one, one of the PCs dies? So you got a player that's sitting there. Do they just sit there for three hours? Do you let them bring them in another you character? Don't, you don't let it happen. Y yeah. Serious. Actually... You, you fudge it. <laughs> <laughs> Something happens, they're not quite dead. Uh, they can, like in Shadowrun, you can actually burn, permanently burn a point of edge to keep your character from dying. You have that option. But for me, especially, what I will do is I will take, you know, I've had so many critical hits take out people in the very first round of the very first combat. And it's like, oh, I just killed your first level character by trampling it with a horse. No, the first thing that I do is, you know, I'll knock them unconscious. They take a critical hit, they're badly hurt but I got to give them a chance to get back in. Now, for tournaments, especially if they're elimination tournaments, here's, a, here's an open secret. We're not going to kill you until it's like the last hour or two of the last night. Then all bets are pretty much off. Ooh, I feel like we're getting dirty secrets here. Yeah, yeah. This, this is <laughs> high-class stuff now. Top yeah. secret. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, Kendall, are there any other questions? And, and I'll just uh, open it up to any questions. Uh, if not, we'll wrap things up. I don't see any questions. It looks like our uh, our listeners are maybe uh, – well, Reverus did say send us answered all of his questions before he can even ask them. So, Senda, what's his next question? Um, you should have pizza. <laughs> oh, and donuts. Huh? Comfortable shoes, comfortable oh, yeah. shoes, water comfortable bottle, shoes. hand sanitizer. Hey, hey, That's girls. a good thing. Pockets. Like, I know that guys don't think about this, but pockets are like super key. <laughs> oh, and I'm going to touch base on that one more time. And then Chris actually had a question. Uh, yes. Important things to do at a convention. Sleep, eat, drink water, bathe. Yes. <laughs> Deodorant. Yes. Be clean. Yeah, be- it, it it is a I don't know a stereotype, but I've been to enough conventions that there is usually one person in every crowd that does not follow that rule. Please mm-hmm. yep. please don't be that person. Yep. And Chris, you will be happier if you eat and drink. Yes. yes. You're going to be more dehydrated than than you think you are. Yep. Yeah. All right. So what was Chris's question? Chris wants to know how much do you fudge the dice rolls? Uh, I don't at all, actually. But I also tend to play games that have no player death. Like, how do you how do you kill someone in All Out of Bubblegum? There is no system of hit points. There is no system of damage. There's nothing. You can't kill anybody in Lasers and Feelings. Again, there is no system of damage. <laughs> like, it's true. The nice. only way you can take someone out in one last job is, like, they, they have to decide. But they could still just decide to, to betray their party. And then they join you as a GM. Like, so, I no, I don't fudge dice rolls at all. But what about you, Kendall? <laughs> I will only fudge rolls if it is thematically, like if I think it's going to add to the story or prevent the story from going horribly wrong. You know, if the if they're fighting their way up to Mount Zoom and they're going to throw this necklace of power into it and they've fought their way all the way there and they're at the lip of it and, oh, I got a lucky hit and I just killed the guy who had the ring and now I'm super powerful. <laughs> I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to hit you. It's going to knock it loose and I'm going to call for a dexterity check for you to grab onto it. And, oh, look, you threw it in with your dying breath. Blam. So I, I will only do fudge dice rolls really when it, it's thematically interesting. So I've I've been in a couple Twitter fights recently and Facebook forums. I am I am pro fudging dice. But because I've been having these conversations, I've actually had to go back and really think about it. I don't fudge dice that often. It's not like something I do all of the time, mm-hmm. but I'm not opposed to doing it if I feel like it needs to be. And it's not just to save characters, but just you know in in a particular moment. Cuz I think again, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. I think most people that are anti-fudging think that the DM or GM has a plan for the story. And the fudging is to make sure that plan happens, which is removing agency, which is railroading, which I am not for. So if I fudge a dice, it's not because I decided before the game started that this was going to happen. It's that in that exact moment, as that die is rolling, myself as a storyteller, mm-hmm. yep. I think I have a, I think I know better than the dice what would make a good story in that moment. Agreed. And it could be because my monster, who's supposed to be a, a tough fight, they just murderized it and no one took any damage. And yeah, that's cool. So I'm not saying I do that every time. But sometimes I might let my creature go to negative two hit points, give them one round, let them do something, hit somebody, yep. and then they get killed. You know, or, you know, there's a, a somebody's trying to, to bluff somebody. And I just think it would be more fun if they got caught. I'm not 
say nope, they pass their check. Or am I thinking it'd be more fun if they failed and, and they get this totally you know crazy lie to go over that their lie was just ridiculous, but for some reason they believe it because it's not an art. It's not a computer simulation. It's not. I've written this this module. I've read this module, and now it's going to run independently of me. As the DM, I'm entrusted with all this power. Like I, you trust me to write a good adventure. You trust me to populate challenging encounters and balance them well, and give you things to role play and set up all this all this stuff that I am trusted to do as the GM. Why does that trust disappear when we sit at the table? In in an, in a moment, I think I have the right and responsibility to fudge a die if I think it makes the game better. Now I could be wrong. I'm still a person. Like as a player, you may think, actually, I would have preferred that I failed that role instead of passing it. But that's a judgment call that I'm going to make. Just like I decided you'd fight four goblins instead of six, or fight one ogre instead of a you know an etten. I made those choices to try to make the game as fun as possible. And when I fudge a die, it's to make the game game as fun as possible. And I'm that's why I'm pro fudging dice. I'm going to challenge you and say, I feel like everything you just said to me means not that you have a problem with fudging dice, but that you're playing games in which you have to fudge dice to be able to accomplish that, and that you should be playing games in which you don't have to fudge dice in order to accomplish that. But that's just me. <laughs> well, there's... There, I, I <laughs> this think, is a different conversation. <laughs> I'm sure, which I'm sure we'll have at some point. I mean, for... I just Bring ran... It. Like I just said, I just ran Curse of Strahd, and this last week, we the group finally fought Strahd. It's the penultimate event of, you know, six months of role play. And in one round, they almost took him down to nothing before he could even do anything other than charm the cleric, which was me trying to game the system in their favor because I went, I'm going to attack the guy with the highest wisdom power so they could feel all cool that they overcome. Wait a minute. Why is the cleric now charmed? Oh, crap. <laughs> but they the still laid plans. Yeah, but they still beat the snot out of him in one round. It's like, okay, this guy is supposed to be. I mean, I've spent six months making him this scary, horrible figure. I'm not going to let him go. To, I ended up taking him to like negative 100% of his hit points because it went three rounds instead of one and it made the fight more interesting. And then they had to do all this other stuff afterwards. I'm not going to spoil the end of the the end of the module for anybody <laughs> who hasn't played Ravenloft at this point. But that's when I, I agree with you. When it's thematically and story appropriate, that's when I'm going to kind of bend it. I feel right. like and, my point still stands, but uh, agreed. <laughs> but if you're not, but if you're not playing those games, you kind of don't fine. have that I, option. No, I, like it's... my my group on Thursday, we're going to play Seventh C, and I, I, I I'm one of the my other players is stepping up to run it. I've been trying to get them to play anything other than D and D and Shadowrun for f- five years now, and we finally got them into playing something else. Yay! And it's like holy crap and it's not me running and it's not me running which makes it even better look 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 and see my shirt it says it says polygamerous <laughs> <laughs> yep. nice awesome um, well th- thank we, you chris we, for that question anymore we got one we more got question. One question yeah yeah go Perfect. for it if someone needs players can you join for a couple of hours but leave early because of an event that you are waiting for reveris asks abso-freaking-lutely as long as you tell yeah. the gm in advance it may depend on the table and it may depend on the game, but um, as long as you set that expectation up front and you ask, like, hey, you have an empty seat. I'm looking for something to do for the next two hours. How long is your game? Oh, it goes a little bit longer. Is it something that I can play with you for a little bit and then step out of? Like, you can you can ask that question and just don't be don't be offended if they say no, because it may not be the kind of game that you can do that. But um, you you I mean, why not? 
But I'm going to I'm going to make the agreement that no one else knows that. I'm going to kill your character when you tell me you have to leave, uh-huh. and I'm going to make it brutal, and then I'm going to force you to walk away so everyone else thinks it was part of the game. <laughs> <laughs> Just rip your character sheet in half, throw it at you. Get off my table. Get out of here. <laughs> One other thing Rubber has said that, uh, that Chris responded to in the chat was uh, that he ran three games and fudged a lot of dice himself, but that's because he's a new GM and is bad at making encounters. And Chris pointed out that he's been a GM for a long time. He's still learning how to make encounters. But here's something, and I think Chris actually said this at when we ran a convent, we ran a panel at Grand Con, a lot like this conversation. No plan, no encounter survives contact with the players. It mm. doesn't matter what you plan for, what you encounter, what your encounter looks like. They're gonna do something that you're not gonna see. Uh, I've been. I've been running D&D and other games for <laughs> years. I'm sorry. How many was yeah, that? Yeah, I, did, I didn't hear that. I didn't quite catch it. <laughs> it I, it's older than dirt years. Um, <laughs> I played the original Nintendo. Shh. And players still just completely freak me out. I ran a Star Wars game. And it, it, was this whole, it was set around this idea that they were going to go through episode four and they were going to take, you know, Luke and Obi-Wan and the droids off and everything like that. And there was this first the, the stormtroopers were going to try and arrest them. And the first player goes, all right, I turn around and talk him out of it. And he like then presented a perfectly logical reason why he had these droids and that they were not the droids that they were looking for using complete logic, not the force, no nothing. And then he rolls like so many triumphs. I. I had never seen anyone roll that many triumphs before. And I'm just like, all right, you just circumvented the first hour and example combat that I had planned. Good job. Because <laughs> <laughs> most players, they see stormtroopers, they're going to shoot. Not this guy. So they never survive contact with the players. Well, and I, and I do think that's a really good point that – I think that new GMs are the ones that who are most likely that need to fudge a die because you're not good at building encounters and you maybe make a mistake and go, oh, they'll fight four goblins. That's no problem. But then when you roll initiative, all four of your goblins go first and the first two crit. If you're new and maybe you do build an encounter that's not balanced correctly or you just have a really good run, run of luck, I think the fear is, is that if you're not very experienced, then the reason why you're fudging dice is more because, oh, well, I plan for you to get captured, so you can't kill my goblins because they have to capture you. That's where, in my mind, it moves into a situation that's not Railroady. what you should do. It's railroady. It's taking away agency from the players. Because I'm actually okay with the railroad. I just want to have agency. Yeah. If you say you have to fight four goblins, cool, as long as I can fight them in any way I want to, including seduce them or trick them or join with them and fight everyone else. As long as you give me the ability to interact with that challenge whatever way I want, I'm okay with being on a railroad from, from set piece to set piece. But if you're going to fudge a die, it, if it's for, okay, I build a bad encounter, my only options are kill everybody, start over, or fudge a couple dice, or maybe the one in the middle, you just say, hey, Guys, players, I really screwed up this encounter. Yes. Instead of four Ettons, there's one, and he's got a broken leg. Okay, we all good? And go. Yeah. You know, y- you can handle it that way, but that's that's when I think you should fudge a die is if you've, you've messed up as a DM and you're trying to fix a mistake, not because you're trying to control the outcome of a story. Yep, I agree with you 100% on that. And Reverus actually says something that I, I'm going to address here before Chris had another question. He said, I would love it if the GM brutally killed my character for that reason. It would be awesome. And what I say to you is at a catacon or any other convention you go at when you're before the game, when you meet, get up and meet the GM, take him aside and say, Hey, if at the end of the game you need to kill somebody brutally, I am totally on board with that. You will watch your GM's eyes light up. 
<laughs> He'll be like, yes, I can kill somebody. So, nice. except Senda, who doesn't ever kill anybody in her, in her anybody. Games. I I honestly, it's been a long time since I ran a game. Okay, somebody died in the last convention game that I ran. I'm not gonna lie, but uh, but like I play a lot of games that don't have a damage mechanic, so <laughs> <laughs> it's great. People relax. They're like, I'm like, don't worry about it. I can't kill you. And they're like, oh really? Oh, I'm gonna do this. Then I'm like, yeah, just go nuts. Like, come on, let's play. It's good. Chris's question is: Some players have bad luck rolling dice and seem to fail at checks often. How do you try and keep the players' spirits up? That that is difficult, and I have experienced that myself as a player. And even, even someone who's played a long time, who's GM'd a lot, and kind of know how things work. I was playing a character, and I just kept failing and kept failing, and I myself got very sort of frustrated. So my my method as a player is I just try not to roll the dice. I I go into every game with the idea that I am not going to roll the dice. I'm going to role play myself out of every situation, and I'm going to remove the randomness. And it doesn't always work. You're still going to roll some dice, but I try not to as much as possible. And I think as a as a GM, and this is something I've talked about before, is how often are you rolling the dice? You know, I think most GMs could roll them less. You know, if your character is a, even a third level rogue and they're trying to do something that rogues should be able to do, like climb a wall or break into a house or pickpocket someone, just let them do it. Be like, oh man, you're yeah, you're great at this. You know, you get that one. Unless it's like, you know, a, a powerful NPC or a, like a boss monster or something like that. Give them some instant successes. Don't make a big deal. In fact, I'm not going to make you roll because you're going to fail. Just say, oh, no, you know what you're doing. You know, your character can easily do X, Y, or Z. So they still get to be, you know, successful and just kind of bypass the die. Uh, that's what I would do. What about you, Cinda? Then we'll go back to Kendall. <laughs> well, I'm the oddball out again, right? So the games in which I play... There's two parts to it. Um, most of the time, pretty much all the games that are run at conventions, when you fail a role, you fail at that thing, but it usually makes the story cooler or something else happens. Like if you're playing all out of bubblegum and you fail that mundane check, so you, you know, don't open the door or whatever. Sure, but you just got angrier. So you're one step closer to being able to accomplish everything in the most kick-ass way possible. <laughs> Or like, uh, you know, lasers and feelings, you failed that, that's fine. Like, you failed it, but it just complicated the game and made the story more interesting. And in fact, as a GM, I love, I love it when people, um, actually, partial successes are my favorite. Because then you succeed, and I still get to, like, put something in there. Like, to sneak (laughs) something in, like, oh, but this unexpected other thing happened. So, uh, so I'm, I'm a really big fan of partial successes and stuff. And, and I am as a player as well. And actually as a player, I don't mind failure because when you're playing in the kinds of games that deal with things on a scale of partial success or that kind of thing, or like if you're playing Dungeon World or, um, games along those lines, failure is really, I mean, it might hurt your character, but it usually makes the story cooler. And there's usually something in it for you a little bit, like an experience point or whatever. So I I don't have problems with that as often. Like one last job, when someone fails at one last job, that's how we create the crazy, awesome backstory that interconnects everyone. Like that's how we keep getting closer to talking about what was the event, the reason that you don't work with each other anymore. Like, so... um. Uh, it's it's a lot of games that failure isn't necessarily bad, right? And and that's a table culture thing. It's a um, it's creating that social contract at the table that like it's okay if you don't roll well because it means these other cool things happen. Um, so I, I would say I think 
I think those games just run differently because I've I've had that exact experience, Michael. Like, I know exactly what you mean. It's super annoying. I'm like, I'm the damn rogue and I'm hidden and I hide every other turn and I get an extra freaking 66 to my dice pool because I am hidden and I'm going to sneak attack this bastard. And every time I jump out, I cannot hit him. Like, yes, and yeah. just spend the entire encounter doing nothing but, like, okay, fine, I'm going to go hide again. Like, um, or can someone please flank him? Like, you know, it's... um. I noticed really that uh, <laughs> we see a lot of... And Chris's question made me think about this. I see a lot of that, especially in the... the I want to say the D20 games. Uh, D&D, especially, I've got a player who can't roll for crap most of the times, and he gets so frustrated because he's constantly missing and constantly missing. Of course, then he'll turn around and roll crit like crits all day. So it, it, he tends to vacillate from one, one side to the other. With Star Wars especially, this is why I, when we first started playing Star Wars, I hated the dice. When I picked them up, I'm like, what the hell is this? This is horrible. And now I want to turn every game into using that system. Because even if you fail, there's cool things that can come out of it. You can describe how your failure, you know, in, it, it makes the story richer. In our podcast, we and this may be a little spoilery, but I think it was like the episode before last, we had a fight where this droid was on our ship trying to break in and kill us. And my character's sitting there trying to push him off with force push. And I couldn't roll to save my life constantly round after round. And, but we kept on, you know, coming up with ways that, you know, he clamps, he rips into the ship and starts clamping on, you know, and we use those failures to build a better story. And that's one, one of the things I love about that is when you can stop looking at failures and horrible dice rolls as, Oh, I didn't do it. Why didn't you do it? What happened because of that? I mean, you didn't not do it. Something happened. It may not have been what you expected. You might not have been successful. Maybe you didn't hit the orc. But what happened? Did you stumble past him, run headfirst into a tree, and the orc's now laughing his ass (laughs) off and can't attack this round? You know, who knows? So there's a lot of options there, too. It's just... (laughs) Different systems handle it in different ways and some better than others. Well, and I think that really goes back to Cinda's one of her original points about choosing the right game for conventions. And I equate it to like going to a casino and gambling. You know, over the long haul, if you play a winning strategy, you should see success. If But in an individual session, you could lose your ass. Or you could win big, and especially with a, D, a D20 system, which has a very swingy mm-hmm. – it doesn't even have a bell curve. It's just a linear yeah. line. So, yeah, you're going to have those really intense swings. So, you know, playing at a home game where you're going to play every week for months or years, then, you know, one session where you're not rolling well, it's not a, not a big of a deal. If you're playing in a one four-hour game that you're really excited about and you suck the entire time, that's going to have – I think more of an emotional impact and it's going to affect your mood. So I think that's why there are con games that are games that make more sense for cons. And to your point, Sunday, I have started running Wushu at cons. I run dread at cons. I'm going to run all out of bubblegum at at, at a catacon because (laughs) join me. (laughs) Well, And here's the funny thing, because again, it's got the Michael twist. I'm trying to find a way that it's bad to get better. So that's why it's called Dark Hero. So there's there's a, there's a negative consequence to losing Bubblegum. Even though in the game that makes you better, there's a twist on it to make that something you don't necessarily want to have happen. But anyway, so yeah, I started to play games that are more like that because I think they make a better con experience for me as a player and as a GM. I enjoy those more. Still love D&D. It's still my favorite game. I probably will, it will always be my favorite game. 
but I don't know that's my favorite convention game because I don't even play it at conventions anymore. Very rarely. I go to conventions to play other games than D&D. Now, if I have a hole in my schedule and there's a D&D game, sure. But I don't go to conventions to play D&D anymore. It's, it's always something else I want to do. All right. Any other questions? Yeah, it looks like we have one more question. Cool. Also from Chris. He says, I run a lot of non-railroady games, but had a table full of players that could not handle an open game. How do you get these players more involved? Hmm. <laughs> we kind of talked a little bit about that earlier. Yeah. Um, in that, you know, you, you ask the questions and you try to draw them out. And no matter how good or bad their answer is, it's the best thing you've ever heard. Like, oh, that's so great. Yes, I love that. Yeah, love it. And, and you kind of draw them out. Um, you know, maybe let them group think. Like if, you know, like what do you guys want to do? Uh, again, I try to put a box around things and give them a very specific question, like, why are these two guys fighting, <laughs> not what's happening in the tavern? Why did you get kicked out of this tavern the last time you were here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why are you walking? You're supposed to have horses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and maybe you just get a table that doesn't want to do that, and you just go into, I've, I've ran games for years. All right, rails it is. Here we go. Yep. Four goblins. What are we doing? Yeah, it's a lot more effort. <laughs> What about you, Kendall? What what would you do in that situation? You you run in a high improv game and you have low improv players. Uh, I would drop back seven and punt. Uh, <laughs> no, oh, it, I, I can say one more thing about it, or you can go. No, go ahead. It, Okay. I'm like, here's the other thing that I would say about it is it goes back to setting expectations. And part of that is having a good description of your game so that when people are signing up, they know what they're signing up for. And that goes a long way towards making sure that people know that when you walk up to my game and you're sitting down and it's one last job. <laughs> so in your description, there's a link to an actual play. Right. <laughs> so people, on my people show. Have to, no. Required um, homework. Listen to this. <laughs> listen to this. No, because that would give away things. But, but you know, I, I do tend to say things like, come ready to improv or something like that. Like, we're going to save the world one last time because this terrible thing is happening. Can they do it? We're going to find out together. <laughs> come ready to improv and have fun or whatever. Like, I'll put a little line like that in my game descriptions so that we are clear. Like, there's no rails here. If you're signing up for this game, you know what you're getting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, that, like many things, setting expectations early solves problems before they happen. Yeah. Cinda, Kendall, thank you very much for, for joining me. I really appreciate you guys bringing your expertise. And to any of those listening currently or in the future, this is something we want to continue to do. We have a wealth and breadth of knowledge on the RPG Academy Network, and we want to try to start cross-pollinating and getting some different people together for different topics. So this was done specifically because Petter asked us to. He's like, hey, I'm going to run convention games. How do I do that? So if you have things that you would like to see us discuss, Please let us know. We will try to organize this in the future. Yeah. All right. So, Kendall, um, if you want to kind of uh, reintroduce yourself where people can find you on the Internet, uh, listen to your show or get a hold of you, and then uh, we'll sign off after we all do that. Yep. Thanks for having me on. Um, you can find uh, basically on Twitter at RedemptionPod is our main Twitter. RedemptionPodcast.com is our URL. And Facebook slash RedemptionPod. Darn it! I never go to our Facebook. I, it's always right there <laughs> when, search, I, when right? I log on. It's, on my, it's my homepage. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, oh my god, this is embarrassing. I don't know my own Facebook URL anymore. Okay, but still, you can find us. We're all, everything's linked off redemptionpodcast.com. So you can go there. You can find our iTunes link and all that good stuff. Uh, we are in the middle of season two, and after a year, we're still going strong. So thanks for having us. 
Awesome. Thank you very much for joining me. Cinda. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at I-D-E-L-L-A-M-I-T-H-L-Y-N-N-D. I know that it's really long. It's really long, you guys. So that I have to say it. I always have to spell it. It's Idella Mithland. And yes, it was a name generator. Um, and I do spend a lot of time on Twitter. Um, you can find She's a Super Geek at Sass Geek Podcast on Twitter. And you can also find us all over the social media wherever. Links to the rest of that social media is all on sassgeek.com. Um, and uh, yeah, and you can find me on Gnome Sue. And you can find me on the Misdirected Network on Panda Talking Games. She's everywhere. And um, I think that that's everything. I mean, I could list more things that I've just recently been on, but I'm not going to. <laughs> and we'll, we'll all be at a catacon. We'll yes. Be, and we're all going to be at a catacon. Yeah. A catacon. A catacon. catacon. Like, guys, I'm flying in. Like, it's kind of a, a thing. Like, I'm going to actually, like, go. Like, I'm flying across the country to be at a catacon. Which is a cool. catacon. So. <laughs> so you can come play in our games and be like, you're not doing any of the things you said you would do. Yeah, geez, Michael, this is really a bad game. Why would yeah, this you do is that? awful. Quit fudging the dice. <laughs> uh, so. Why are we playing Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you both very much for being here. Thank you to all those that are watching live and listening and, again, listening in the future. Uh, my name is Michael. I am the co-host of the RPG Academy podcast and the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. So please go to our site and look on, on the right. There's a link to all the shows and sites that are part of the network. They're all awesome and they're all worth checking out. And um, we'll see you at a catacon. So for uh, Kindle and Cinda, this is Michael, and we will see you next time. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at vrpgacademy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.